You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. The Birthing Tree, a huge, gorgeous, 350-year-old plus white oak in McMinnville, Tennessee. It's not only a city landmark, it's the pride of all of Tennessee and plays a part in the state's early pioneer history. It's more than just a big tree, so how did it get its name and what's its story? In this episode, we visit with Warren County historian Jimmy Haley, as well as Tom Simpson, who gave it its official state historic designation when he was a regional urban forester. We'll also follow Celia Wilson and her family on the Settler's Trail. Who? You'll find out. Join me to discover the birthing tree. I'm Doug Still, and this is This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me About what it's like to be this old tree I'd like to start with two important acknowledgements. The first is that the original inhabitants and stewards of the land where we now find McMinnville, Tennessee, were clans of the Greater Cherokee Nation. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 led to the mass migration of Cherokee to the west, to territory that the government had designated. Although there were many routes, collectively this was the tragic Trail of Tears, which comes up during today's episode. The second acknowledgement is that we cannot separate our story from the terrible history of slavery, which impacted contemporary events, the Civil War, and a legacy of inequality. I thank my guests for their forthright discussion. And now to our show. Celia Wilson, or Cela as most people called her, was unsure that leaving Rutherfordton, North Carolina to head west was a good idea. It was summer, it was hot, and she was pregnant with her first child. She'd just married her husband, John Wilson, last year in September of 1844. Her whole family, the Norvals, would remain in Rutherfordton, at least for now, and she'd be leaving them behind. She was just 21 and had never seen the world outside of Rutherford County. But John insisted because they were starting a family. He was 28, but they didn't have land of their own. They needed that if they were going to be farmers and support themselves. She agreed it seemed the best choice under the circumstances. Besides, lots of people were heading west. The trail had been blazed, so to speak. They heard there was open land with good soil to be had. They packed up their possessions, and her family helped stock the wagon that John had, and he had horses too. There was nothing but a canvas cover to keep out the rain. At least there were other young families going too. They wouldn't be going it alone. On an agreed-upon day they left, most likely past Asheville, and then a gap through the Blue Ridge Mountains. Sela was sad, nervous, and excited all at the same time. We'll come back to Celia and the Wilson's wagon train in a bit, but jumping into the present, I'd like to introduce Jimmy Haley. He was a teacher of economics and government at Warren County High School in Tennessee, the former mayor of McMinnville, and the official Warren County historian. 
Jimmy is the right person to talk to about the birthing tree and the history of McMinnville. Well, Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we're here today to talk about the birthing tree, which is an icon in McMinnville, Tennessee. And it's I've seen pictures of it. It's just fantastic. But I have a few questions for you. Are you a native Tennessean? I'm a native Tennessean. I'm a native Warren Countyan. So I was born and raised here. And so I've been here my whole life. Native to McMinnville or nearby? McMinnville, yes. When you were growing up, when did you first become aware of the birthing tree and its significance? It's on a major highway um, running through the county. And so anyone and everyone that travels that Highway 70 goes by that tree. And so even as a small child, I understood the significance of the tree because it was so large. And uh, they redirected the highway when they were building it just to avoid cutting the tree uh, because it was already kind of a, an iconic representation of who we are as a, as a Warren County people. When did that happen? Uh, it was like in the 1950s. 1950s, it was such an important tree and they, they just rerouted the highway around it. They moved it the highway over just a little bit to avoid coming any closer to the tree than they than they had to. Was wondering if you could describe the birthing tree for our listeners. So where is it situated and what does it look like and what does it feel like to stand underneath it? Well, it's um it's it's not very far from downtown. Um it's actually across from the uh, the birthing unit from our local hospital. Um, like I said, it's on the Sparta Highway, the old Kentucky Road, Broadway of America, uh, Highway 70S. It, it goes by a variety of names, but it's a it's been a major thoroughfare um, since the early settlers days. So uh, it's a majestic tree. It's a white oak. It's um, almost 90 feet tall. Uh, the branches are sprawling and they, you know, they hover toward the ground. And so it's kind of gnarled looking, but it's uh, so majestic. Um, in the, in the width and the girth of the of the base of the tree, that it's almost impossible not to recognize uh, the importance of it. As a small child, um, I would ask my father to stop and I would get out and go under and, and stand under the tree because you have a special feeling when you're under the tree. Uh, it's, it's hard to describe, but anybody that's ever been there, you can feel it. It's just an awesome, overwhelming feeling of, of history, um, and, and the powers of Mother Nature to create a tree that's, uh, you know, that tall and, um, and, that, and that wide and those sprawling branches um, that hover toward the ground. Everyone in McMinnville knows this tremendous tree. And as I said before, it's caught the attention of tree lovers and experts across the state. Here is how Tom Simpson describes it. The former East Tennessee Regional Urban Forester within the Department of Agriculture's Division of Forestry. Well, it is an extremely impressive tree. It is a, a huge white oak tree that's on the entrance to McMinnville from a state right away, uh, the town of McMinnville. And you can see this tree from a great distance away as you drive down the highway. I, I can't even fathom what it looked like when they were doing it in wagons and, and horseback. But this gigantic tree has it, it has a crown spread of 130 feet. Wow. So uh, even its height is not so impressive. It was only 81 feet. And when we uh, entered it in 2000, uh, it's not, probably not that much higher now. But um, the, the diameter of the tree was 
was in the neighborhood of seven feet. So it was a very large circumference area tree with a huge canopy that broadened out and covered a large area of surface. And so when you walked under it, you felt like you were in a forest by itself. And there was one limb that came off of it that's still there that that grew out and angled down toward the ground and then grew back up. Yeah, just kind of convoluted out. And that one limb is larger than a lot of trees. And that limb is still there? Or it fell? That limb is still there to my knowledge, yes. Oh, great. And uh, kids play on that and climb on it? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> what happened is, is that tree was so significant to the community a developer was going to develop some property nearby and the city became concerned with that he might lose the tree just just from the standpoint of encroachment of uh, construction. So they uh, wrangled a deal to purchase the footprint of the tree. So the tree became actual property of the city of McMinnville and they erected a plaque. And so it's surrounded by private property? Yes, Yes, it is. I used to climb on it. They don't recommend anybody climbing on it now because the the the, the branches are, are are somewhat fragile and they've been cabled up. When uh, the our developer bought the property and was going to build a clinic there, uh, we all rallied behind not cutting the tree, uh, which we were afraid was going to happen. And so uh, just to protect it. And so Dr. Schultz then uh, spent his own money to help stabilize the tree and cable it and get some professional arborists in to, to make sure that we were doing everything we could to, to increase the longevity of the tree since it's 300 years old, perhaps, or even older. The land underneath the drip line of the tree is now city property and protected. Is that correct? It is. So it's like a pocket park. You know, we have um, a sign there saying such and asking people not to climb on the tree and not to do anything destructive. So, uh, you know, people drive far and wide just to, you know, I see people there all the time. And if I'm able, I will I will stop and talk a little bit about the tree and find out where they're from. But, you know, people from all over the country come and it's nice to be welcomed by the mayor underneath the birthing tree. Yeah, well, it's that I don't always tell them I'm the mayor, so I just uh, <laughs> I kind of incognito on that one. I just right. I've loved the tree my whole life, and it was a it's it's just a special place. It was a special place for uh, the early settlers. Uh, uh, it was on the old Kentucky Road, and so anyone traveling into uh, to Warren County uh, passed through a grove of very large oak trees at that time. And I see. So there was a grove. There wasn't just the one. No, there was a grove of, of oak trees uh, there that the old Kentucky Road came right down through the middle of them. And so it was a natural place, uh, according to legend, for settlers to, to water their horses or oxen and to gather there under the trees to rest before they came into town. Uh, and, and hence the story and the legend of, of children being born under the tree uh, for refuge uh, in those wagon trains before they came into town. And so, hence the birthing tree. What's the basic story behind the birthing tree? Well, the way the story is, is that uh, many of the old settlement trails uh, in Tennessee, uh, one of them was called the Kentucky Trail. The other one was called the Old Walton Trail, which was in Middle Tennessee. This tree stands in Middle Tennessee. But the confluence of several of those trails came right up under the birthing tree. 
And so as settlers would move down the trail going toward Alabama or coming back from Alabama going toward Kentucky or Virginia, uh, they knew about this place. They knew, they had it as a meeting place for many, many years. And so uh, parties would, would wait for other parties to hook up with them on the trail. And as they were waiting, uh, some of the women would deliver babies underneath the trees, hence the name birthing tree. So wow. many, many stories in Middle Tennessee of families that grandparents, uh, parents, who still uh, know uh, are or born under the tree itself. So these were wagon trains, just like in the old movies. Yes, yes, and and of course uh, horseback uh, and and foot traffic as well. Uh, one of the other stories was as this tree was near the Trail of Tears, uh, originally the Cherokee Indian Trail of Tears, uh, as they mar- as they went out to uh, Oklahoma. Uh, I, we've not been able to confirm that exactly, but it is in the vicinity of, we know it's in the vicinity of the old Trail of Tears uh, in Middle Tennessee. I found a relevant map on the National Park Service website. One spur of the Trail of Tears in Tennessee came directly through McMinnville. So the trail, the old Kentucky Trail, mm-hmm, right? you said then comes down to Alabama, and then it's a sort of swing west. Are people heading west? Yes. One of the trails peeled off and went westward. And the old Walton Trail was a connection between East Tennessee and Middle Tennessee that went up through Cookville and areas up into Kentucky. So, like I said, there was confluence of trails going east and west and north and south. And they all met somewhere right at the the, uh, birthing tree. So not all of the the pioneers that might have stayed under the tree were heading west. They might have just been heading south. Correct. And vice versa. Or, yes, vice versa. It's sort of like a, a rest stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, one of our modern-day interstate rest stops. But the, the tree was so large, even then, in the seventeen late 1700s, that the canopy just covered an enormous area, and, and settlers could rest under there for days. And, in fact, we've heard stories of a week or so where people would, would stand under the tree uh, to be shaded from you know, the sun in the summer and perhaps uh, some of the storms that came through there. And it just gathered this lore, (laughs) right? Yes. After a quick break, we'll hear more from our guests, Tom Simpson and Jimmy Haley, about the birthing tree and its part in Tennessee history. You're listening to This Old Tree. train eased out of the Smoky Mountains, moving slowly down the bumpy path into the Cumberland Valley of eastern Tennessee. It had been over a month, and Sela's feet hurt. There may have been wagons, but nobody rode in them unless they wanted to jar their spine and develop a headache. Pregnant or not, she walked most of the way like everyone else. But as the summer was ending, the baby was getting bigger. Another family in the wagon train were the Meltons, and John and Sela got to know Spencer and his wife Rosanna very well. They were also from Rutherford County, and they had a son with them, 13-year-old James Melton. I imagined that to him every day was exciting, running off ahead or exploring the woods nearby with other kids. Perhaps he helped his father hunt. 
The trail in the flat valley was a relief after the difficult mountain terrain, and there were towns and settlements along the way to get supplies. When they got near Chattanooga after a few weeks, they were told they needed to head west and climb again, and find a pass called Hill's Trace that led to the Cumberland Plateau of Central Tennessee. There, they would connect with the Kentucky Road, which traversed somewhat in a north-south direction. Many settlers entered central Tennessee from the north along this well-used road, but the Wilsons approached it from the southern end of the plateau. The Meltons and the Wilsons were heading to Kentucky, where there was good land being offered to settlers cheap. Celia wondered where she would be when her baby was born. the pioneers that were traveling on this road in the wagon trains we're talking about 1780s 90s and then the first few decades of the 1800s is that correct or was it sort of a longer period of time when the wagon trains came through well the earliest settlers you know were were coming through here in the 1780s and in 90s there were very few people living here at that particular time um many of them are going on to nashville and fort nashboro here in McMinnville, most of the settlers were coming through after 1800. Um, many of them were headed further west or further south. The, the territory was wide open for, for settlement. And so Warren County quickly grew. A lot of people who came through here decided it was a great place to live. Uh, they loved the terrain. It was rich soil. Uh, we have four rivers that converge here and surrounded by mountains and the soil was rich enough to support crops and, and cattle and pasture land. So uh, a lot of people decided to stay and McMinnville was founded in 1810. And so we, we, it grew quite rapidly as the county seat and uh, with the courthouse and court proceedings and, and uh, just the logistics of business, everyone from the county came into town. And of course, anybody that lived in the northern part of the, the county would would travel the Kentucky Road into into McMinnville on the Sparta Road into into downtown. You said four rivers converge there? Yes. But it also seems like there was the old Kentucky Road, but there are many offshoots and directions people were coming and going. Some were going west, some were going south. Yes. People traveling from you know, Kentucky down into Tennessee or from Virginia and particularly into Tennessee. So most of the settlers here, a lot of people came from North Carolina uh, and came across the mountains that way. So they came, many of them came from the Chattanooga and came across the mountains that way. So they didn't travel the old Kentucky road. They traveled some uh, other roads, Hills Trace and others. Yeah, there were trails over um, what we now term as the Rockwood Mountain. Um there were trails that went through some gaps through there that went over into Middle Tennessee. I I, I don't even know the, the name of those gaps anymore, but they knew them. And there was one trail that came through uh, Rockwood in East Tennessee that had a tow road set up by the Cherokees, and you would pay uh, a toll to go westward from there. And that trail took you back up over to the plateau, the Cumberland Plateau, and then on beyond into wherever you wanted to go from that point. And who were the settlers? Um, a lot of them were what we call Scotch-Irish. Uh, many of them, like I said, a lot of them came from Virginia and North Carolina. Of course, many of them had immigrated from other, other colonies into those, uh, into those states early on. But uh, the majority of our stock is, uh, is Virginia and North Carolina settlers. 
many of them were, you know, second and third, maybe fourth generation settlers. Uh, the land was starting to play out. They were looking for new fortunes. Uh, they were looking for new opportunities in the West. And so Tennessee was was Western land at that particular time. Didn't cross over uh, the Mississippi quite yet. So uh, uh, a lot of people sought their fortunes here. So they were not fresh off the boat. They were colonists and were, had been living elsewhere and yes. were moving West. Some of the men were in the Revolutionary War, I, I believe. Yes, they were. And, and many of them had land grants to settle here. So that brought many of them here to this area, either from serving uh, a lot in the Virginia militia or in uh, the North Carolina Army as well. What was it that they wanted? What were they dreaming about? Um, if it was like my family, they were just looking for a better life, a new opportunity, a new start. You know, the frontier offers a lot uh, to new settlers. And so, you know, you can start a business, you can start a farm, or you can do both, uh, which is what a lot of settlers did. They would oftentimes have businesses in town and then also have farm operations uh, alongside of that. But uh, in Memphis was never really a log city. It was a very formally laid out town with brick sidewalks and brick buildings and, you know, some very sophisticated people, lawyers and doctors settled here early on and a lot of businessmen uh, profited. And uh, with the coming of the railroad in the 1850s, it even made it more opportunity for people to come here. To the best of your ability, what do you think life was like on one of those wagon trains? What do you think their biggest hardship was? Um, probably food and water. Um, you know, in the early days, most of the, the Native American challenges by the early 1800s were, were over. And so that was not in the 1780s and 90s. That was not the case. Native Americans were were still uh, fighting for control and possession of, of this territory and the land. And so, you know, there were several little skirmishes in and around McMinnville and, of course, in Middle Tennessee and around Nashville as well during that period. But um, my grandmother um, came here late, a little bit later than that. Um, they moved from Alabama, actually, uh, to Warren County. And so they came by wagon and oxen and mules and um, came across through Chattanooga. They had to cross on a ferry boat on the Tennessee River. And, uh, you know, they would do just like in the in, in the Western stories, they'd make a big circle and a big bonfire in the middle. And, and uh, children would oftentimes change places on the seats of other people's wagons. And they, they sang songs, but uh, most of the time they took enough provisions to, uh, to, to feed them. But, you know, fresh water was a little bit of an obstacle. And, of course, uh, catching diseases and uh, getting ill with dysentery, those are things that uh, were oftentimes crucial. And, of course, it, you know, if a woman was pregnant or, you know, you had small children, um, you know, it was a bumpy ride. The Wilson's wagon train made their way up over Hill's Trace, and they saw the plateau. They followed a trail down off the pass that loosely sidled the Collins River and went by the location of present-day Irving College. Approaching McMinnville from the south, they crossed Barren Fork, a tributary of the Collins. It is not clear if there was a bridge at that time or they had to ford the stream. Most likely it was October or even early November when they entered McMinnville. 
Sila was getting closer to giving birth, and she knew they needed to stop. Walking was becoming very difficult, and so was riding in the wagon or by horse. She began to receive advice from people they met along the trail that McMinnville might be a good place to stop because it was a growing town with storefronts and a doctor. The forest all around had been cleared by then, but there were several big oak trees they could camp under. One of them had a growing legend. If your baby is born beneath it, that was good luck. They found the big tree. You couldn't miss it from a mile away. Its branches stretched out wide and welcoming. There were other people in wagons beneath it, some community. It was as good a place as any. They set up there, and on November 12, 1845, Sela gave birth to a little girl, Elizabeth Wilson. So McMinnville was the natural place to stop to, to restock and resupply. Was there water here? Yes, because of the water and, like I said, the businesses that were here. So there were businesses. Could you describe that? Oh, there was mercantile stores. We had, um, you know, we had blacksmiths, you know, which were crucial and stuff in early settlement with horses and mules and oxen. We had cabinet makers. We had, uh, you know, we had people doing construction for, for homes. So we had builders you know, attorneys. I mean, we, there was very little that Warren County didn't have early on by, you know, 1840 or 50. By the time the railroad came, you know, we were a fairly sophisticated little town. What about around 1800? Was there like a main street with buildings? No, no. McMinnville wasn't founded till 1810. And so uh, the county was founded in 1807. We still had quite a bit of, uh, you know, settlers here, but uh, Minville had not been laid out or was not the county seat at that particular time. Now, you said that your ancestors were one of those pioneers, one of the settlers? They were. My, you know, my early settlers came from Virginia and North Carolina uh, on both sides of my family, and uh, they were here very early. Um, on the Martin side, they were here before 1800, uh, settling here in White County and, uh, and in Van Buren County. That's the near, those are two nearby counties. Um, what were their names? Uh, they were Martins. The last name was Martin. And then the Haley's uh, came a little bit later. Um, they originally settled in Cannon County and then moved to, to Warren County in the 1820s uh, from the nearby. It was Cannon County at that time was part of Warren County. Uh, it didn't become Cannon County till later. So it was all Warren County, but they moved uh, uh, closer in. Do you have any items from the Martins when they were here, like letters or anything? I do. I have uh, quite a few. I have a whole box of of letters. Um, and my family were also, they owned enslaved people. So I have those papers as well that I've hung on to and plan to give to the state archives so they can be preserved because it's a part of history. But I have a spinning wheel for my my father's side that dates back to about 1810, 1820. It was my great-great-grandmother's that she spun on, so I still have that. Any old photos that might have the tree in it? There are very few photographs that, that show that tree, and I'm not really sure exactly why. We've, we've tried to identify some, and uh, they just don't exist. Pictures that were taken of the house don't include the, the tree. They, they show the house and the trees around the house. Um, just back to the Martins. So you, how many generations back is that? Um, six, I think. Wow. 
this uh, local lore that we, we really didn't even know about. If you live in East Tennessee, you didn't know it. You didn't hear about it. It's not published on TV shows or whatever. And so now you're you're in Knoxville, right? I'm in Knoxville, right? And so that's over the mountains. Over the mountains, yes. Right. So and so, so it feels very like a different place. Sure, sure. And we had not heard about the birthing tree uh, until it was actually nominated. But then once we got to digging into the history behind it, oh, you, you could you could pick out many, many stories and many, many documentations on this particular tree. Do you have any specific stories of families that, that um, might have encamped underneath the tree or someone was born under the tree? No, I don't. I don't particularly have those stories. I, I know I, we've heard of some, and there were some articles published uh, locally in McMinnville for several years over some of those stories. I just don't have access to those right now. Jimmy Haley didn't actually know anyone either who claims their ancestor was born under the birthing tree. I spoke to several other people in McMinnville, and finding someone with a real story was proving difficult. It seemed that while this was a legend that many people knew about, it may be more legend than fact. Then I came across an article that mentioned Hobart Massey, the former Warren County historian and a local character who passed away in 1982. This was probably before your time, but did you have a chance to know Hobart Massey? I did know Mr. Hobart Massey. I did um, quite well. He was big into uh, agriculture extension here and, and help with the fair. He was uh, an amazing gentleman uh, who knew history and loved to tell stories and, and was, was legendary, really. He was an historian? He was. The county historian, but he called himself a historian. He loved stories. He loved repeating them. He, he was an amazing, uh, you know, uh, legendary person who loved to spin a good tale and, and tell a good story. My understanding is it might have been him that coined the term the birthing tree. That has been said uh, before. Um, when I, I when I was a little kid, um, I, I didn't call it the birthing. We didn't. We just called it the big tree, the big oak tree. Right. And so, but then people started calling it the birthing tree. So for the last 50, 60 years, uh, that's all anyone. That's the only number that people place upon it now. He apparently wrote a few articles in the local paper. He, he wrote several articles. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, a lot of those have become, you know, they repeated a lot of legend. Um, and so sometimes, like I said, sometimes it's hard to, you know, separate legend and lore from fact. There's very little factual information or written information on that tree, which is amazing. So until it was, you know, it was... Um, nominated, you know, for a, a as a landmark tree by uh, former uh, urban forester for the city of McMillville, Nick Kuhn. You know, there was very little research that had been done on it. And so um, when they started digging, it was, there was more stories and legend than there was actual factual information on it. So, uh, in fact, some of those stories have been told so many times now that, that uh, people... They become fact. They become fact. What was the name of the paper that Hobart Massey would have written in? The Southern Standard. Southern Standard has been around since 1870s, so it's a it's a it's a landmark newspaper. Where would I go to find them? Um, Historical Society. Uh, the the library, the the Magnus Library downtown, has a genealogy room. Magnus Library. Yes. 
Later, after the interview, I called the Magnus Library and spoke to Cheryl Watson Mingle, the genealogist there. She laughed when I asked her if she had information about the birthing tree because Jimmy had already called her about it. She was on it. She had found a typewritten transcript for an article written by Hobart Massey in the Warren County News back in 1980 called The Birthing Tree. She emailed it to me. Finally, I found what I was looking for. It tells the story of Hobart Massey attending a three-day church meeting up in Madisonville, Kentucky, about a three-hour drive north from McMinnville. During that meeting, he met an elderly woman, Mrs. John S. Gibson, and got to know her a bit. Mrs. Gibson knew McMinnville. She said her grandmother was born under a large tree there. Hobart was already familiar with the legend, and he was off and running. He told her all about the old white oak tree. Mrs. Gibson's maiden name was Sylvester Mosley, but she was known as Vessie to people that knew her. She was the daughter of Sylvester, yes, she was given her father's name, and Florence Mosley, known as Ma Mosley. This led to finding further information on Ancestry.com. Hey, there's nothing like doing a little research from a home computer. Now, Ma Mosley was the daughter of one James Melton, the 13-year-old boy we met earlier in our story and, you guessed it, Elizabeth Wilson. You're listening to This Old Tree. After another short break, we'll learn about the legacy of McMinnville, Tennessee's historic white oak, the birthing tree. You ran the Heritage Tree Program, or what was the name of that program? Uh, at the time, it was called the Landmark and Historic Tree Program or Register. What's it called now? Well, it's called the Landmark Historic and Heritage Tree, because in 2009, we added the category of heritage. And um, how did the tree first come to your attention? Yeah, the birthing tree was uh, nominated by Nick Coon, who was a city forester in Memphis. In 2000, he nominated it to the Tennessee Urban Forestry Council's Landmark and Historic Tree Registry. Uh, and we have a committee that goes through the process of um, vetting the um, nominations. And so they quickly approved that one. Um, and so that was where we were first exposed to that tree was in 2000. What are the different, what, there are three different categories, right? Sure. Yeah, there was landmark and historic. These are living trees. Landmark trees are trees that are familiar to the community. Um, they're commonly recognized by the community and, and they're confirmed to be significant to the community's heritage. I mean, we can use that term interspersedly, but, um, and then the uh, historic trees are trees, they're living trees that have witnessed some historic event, uh, either regionally, statewide, nationwide, or in the community itself. I see. And then you have a third category, which is heritage trees. Right. Well, the, the program started in 1998, but Gene Hyde, who was president of the Tennessee Urban Forestry Council at the time, Nick Coon was a member of the council. So in, in uh, 2009, we had looked at uh, nine years of the uh, program and realized that some of the trees that we were entering into that registry had a lifespan that might not last you know, forever, because trees don't live forever. So the stories and the historical uh, significance of the trees would be lost once those trees passed away because 
the landmark and historic categories only have living trees. I see. So heritage trees are trees of the past. Yes. We also want to be able to pick up trees that have passed away, um, but were famous trees. And except for the fact that that they didn't survive up until the 1998 uh, creation of the of the uh, program. When a tree is recognized, what happens? Does do you, is there an award ceremony or? There is an award ceremony. Yeah, at the annual uh, Tennessee Urban Forestry Council meeting, um, we recognize the nominators uh, or the owners of the trees, and we have a plaque made, uh, an inside plaque, walnut plaque made for for the one who uh, nominated it or at least owns the tree. And then and then we place the tree with its story, picture of the tree in the story, onto our website. That's great. So if anyone wants to look these up, they can go to the, the website for the Tennessee Urban and Community Forestry Council. TUFC.com will take you to the uh, the website. And then it's it's listed under programs then. Now, this all got compiled into a book, right? Yes. The book was called Trees of Tennessee. Uh, the council published this book, and uh, it's uh, lacking of so many trees that we've we've put on the registry since then. But it's a great uh, coffee table, hard hardcover book. Yeah, it looks fantastic. I haven't held a copy of it in my hands, but it looks wonderful. Now, was the birthing tree one of the first trees designated in your program? It was not the first, but it was one of the first three years. It was one of the first trees. It is significant, though, because its size has been uh, shown on many, many pictures that show the famous trees. It, it is a landmark tree in itself, just from our program. What are a few other trees that have been recognized? Oh, my goodness. We could, we could go on for a long time on that. But to me, the moon trees are, are the some of the most famous trees. And those are the trees uh, as seeds that were on the Apollo 14 moon flight. Stuart Rusa, who had been a, a, a smoke jumper for the U.S. Forest Service in his past life. Then he became an astronaut. Um, and Apollo 14 was, was allowed, the astronauts were allowed to take on some private uh, individual uh, objects. Um, if you remember, uh, Al Shepard took uh, um, golf clubs and, and had the longest golf drive on the moon. But, uh, but Stuart Russo was a command module pilot and, and, and um, circled the moon while they were down on playing on the surface. Um, after they returned, uh, he, he let the U.S. Forest Service take those into two laboratories and raise them into seedlings. And in 1972, in our bicentennial for our state, uh, the U.S. Forest Service donated four of those trees to our state that had been around the moon. And um, we planted those four trees, and, and it was it was a treasure hunt to find all four of those trees. But we did find all four of them, two sycamores and two uh, loblolly pines. Um, you know, there there are other trees that just that are fascinating. There's a tree very close to uh, the birthing tree in West Tennessee that is the Cherokee oak, and it was named because a woman uh, that was on the Trail of Tears, a Cherokee lady, uh, as the wagon broke down, she escaped and and hid out in a cave near the tree, and uh, later on she married um, a white man in middle Tennessee and formed many of the 
union, that union formed many of the citizens of, of Middle Tennessee uh, from that family. So that tree was also famous because it was the Cherokee Oak was the scene of a resting place for um, the la- one of the last U.S. postal horseback riders hmm. who had a 26-mile route, and he would stop and rest his horse under that tree for, for many, many years until he retired. Hey, what's the Daniel Boone tree? The Daniel Boone tree. Um, originally, there was a, a Daniel Boone. D. Boone killed a bar. That's the famous one that in history books have. Uh, that was at Jonesboro, and it was on a beech tree that he carved, and it since fell back in the 50s in storms. I'm sorry. So he carved into the bark of a beech tree. What did he carve? D. Boone killed a bar. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and uh, You must have a picture of that. Well, we do. It's remarkable to me that they car that those carvings would last that long. Well, sure, they, the, the bark didn't grow over them. No, no, no. The bark, the bark won't. It sometimes will be hard to read, but the bark won't cover all the way over the the carvings themselves. More about that program. Why do you think that program is so important? Well, it shows the connection of 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 what trees do for mankind and and the connection that we have to trees and those trees that live long enough and are are significant enough to stand there um, are living stories by themselves of of the history of mankind around it. But not only the trees, but then to discover the history behind the trees. to the story of the Wilsons. We don't know how long they stayed in McMinnville after the birth of Elizabeth under the tree, but it may actually have been for a few years. Many people did settle in the McMinnville area. It was a promising place to be. However, the family shows up in the 1850 census. John, Selah, Elizabeth, and a new brother John had moved to East Tennessee to McMinn County, not to be confused with McMinnville in Central Tennessee. Sela's extended family, most of the Norval clan, are shown to be living in McMinn County as well, so they had moved from North Carolina. John and Sela met them there and lived a number of years. The Meltons, on the other hand, the family that had been traveling with them, kept on to Kentucky, and the 1850 census shows them living as farmers in Henderson County. The 1860 census shows John and Selah and the Wilson family in Ozark, Missouri, but then other records show that they moved to central Kentucky in the mid-1860s. The beginning and end of the Civil War might have had something to do with these movements. Obviously, the Wilsons and Meltons met up again because James and Elizabeth were married on January 1st, 1867 in Henderson County, Kentucky. They ended up having eight children together, six of whom survived childbirth. The birthing tree brought them pretty good luck after all. Years later, after Hobart Massey met Bessie Gibson in Madisonville, he invited her back to McMinnville to see the birthing tree. Before she arrived, he painted a picture of it in oil and presented it to her underneath the spreading, marvelous oak tree her grandmother was born under. What makes the birthing tree so special and why is it important to you? Um, I think part of the reason it's so special is because it survived uh, 
it survived the urbanization and the development all around there. There's hospitals, there's hotels, there's clinics all around that area. The state area technology school is there. Motlow campus is there. There's several factories in and around. So within just a you know, quarter mile, there's a lot of development and there's a lot of asphalt and there's a lot of pavement. And, uh, you know, four-lane highway running within just a few feet of, uh, of the tree. And so just that it survived um, when the, all the other trees around it have gone, um, to me, makes it a little special. It does. And six generations of your family have stood underneath that tree. Um, yes. Most likely. Most likely. Well, I just—it's just the history of these trees is just fascinating to me. I guess. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I love trees because I went to the college and learned about you know forestry, and I, I've spent my life in forestry. But my second love was history, and to combine those two. Uh, yeah, that's exactly why I do this. Yeah. <laughs> just the combination, and it's it's a living link to the past. It is these indeed. historical yes. events. So yeah. I think that has a lot of inspiration for people. The the majesty of the tree and how it just hugs the ground and you can walk in and amongst those gnarled uh, limbs that are curled down toward the ground. Um, you just feel almost encapsulated. It's almost like a cocoon and you're just wrapped in a part of history. And it just um, it makes a very special feeling inside of you. And other people feel it too. When we did our bicentennial, um, for the county uh, in 2007, uh, the birthing tree was our symbol. And so we have a, a monument on Court Square um, that embellishes um, the, the story of really the birthing tree. And, and, our, and our, our phrase for the, was our roots run deep. And so uh, not only does the roots of that oak tree run deep, but the roots of Warren County run similarly so in many cases side by side through the generations. Well, I want to thank you for talking with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for sharing all of that history. And thank you for, for wanting to share our history. So we're very proud of it. Uh, and like I said, our roots do run deep and, uh, and that birthing tree is, is symbolic. And that's what the birthing tree is all about. I want to thank Jimmy Haley, the historian of Warren County, and Tom Simpson, the retired urban forester of Eastern Tennessee, for spending time with me to tell its story, and for all of the contributions they made behind the scenes. What fantastic guests. And I have some other news. I've had the pleasure to connect with Elizabeth Wilson Melton's great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth Benton, who was named after her. She's a hoot and a super nice person. She provided some of the top-notch genealogy I found that helped explain some of the family ties and stories. She also has photos of Elizabeth and James, which I have permission to share on Facebook and Instagram. And remember that oil painting that Hobart Massey gave to Vessie under the birthing tree? She tracked it down with some phone calls. Her cousin Dana had it. They sent a picture of that too. Thank you very much, Elizabeth and Dana. But don't go yet. We've got three tree story shorts for you.
This is where show listeners get to submit their own audio stories about a tree important to them. The first is from Ava Monheim. Ava is a speaker, consultant, garden coach, designer, writer, photographer, and co-host of the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast with Hal Rosner. Do check it out. She is also the author of Shrubs and Hedges, Discover, Grow, and Care for the World's Most Popular Plants, a book that was inspired by her years of teaching woody plants as an assistant professor at Temple University in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Horticulture. Ava took time for her packed schedule to record this story about a European beech tree that she saw change over time. Hello, my name is Eva Monheim, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about a, uh, a European beech, or a Fagus sylvatica, um, where I was working at the Ambler campus of Temple University. I was a professor of landscape architecture and horticulture, and I taught woody plants. And the one plant that I taught was a European beech. And this tree that we had was quite old, about 150 years old. And it was beautiful. It looked like it had elephant skin. That's classic for, for the tree. And uh, one of the primary ways it reproduces is to lay its branches down to the ground, if you let it. Um, and in this case, there was one branch that was allowed to touch the ground and root. Over time... Uh, this branch eventually rooted, and it stood up. Uh, that's classic when once the once the uh, new progeny uh, is independent, it will actually be vertical rather than horizontal. So um, at that same time, there was a, a construction. A new building of a garden, and they brought in a big truck, and it had stone, and they parked it right on the old parents' root. And if you know anything about Fagus sylvatica, they do not like compressed roots. They like to be um, undisturbed. So after the truck had left, it started, the tree started to decline, and it declined over a period of about five years. During that time, I would have meditation classes that I would teach, and you know, students would come to this tree and um, touch it and do meditations on it. And over time, this tree declined and started to rot, and then there was an animal living in it. And to watch the process of this old tree giving its energy to this young progeny uh, was fascinating because you could actually see how the energy was leaving the parent tree and going into the young tree and providing for it. And um, I never could figure out when I was going to England, I, I've lived in England and saw these tree rings in England, and I realized that those tree rings were created by a solitary European beach that had laid its uh, branches all the way around itself to create a ring. And from that parent, the parent provides the food for the young ones. And in this case, when the parent died, the limb was severed from the parent and the young tree continued to grow. More recently, there was a tornado that went through uh, the campus. And I'm not sure if the tree is still standing, but just to know that the parent was unselfish in giving its energy to the young tree really amazed me. And when you see a tree ring, 
uh, you know, trees that are purposely, where you think that they're purposely planted may not be purposely planted, depending on what type of tree is is creating the tree ring. In the case of sylvatica, uh, Fagus sylvatica, uh, they create their own tree rings. Um, so when you see something like that in Europe and you think about it or you look at the structures of the of the trees, you can pretty much tell whether they are the offspring of the parent and they're not purposely planted. So consider that when you're looking at and observing nature in its best. Of course, I think this is one of the best stories of an unselfish parent giving to its child. Thank you, Ava, for your observations of the beech tree and finding the poetry in it. The next story is from Brandon Nam, a tree inspector from the city of Portland, Oregon, and a private consulting arborist with Laureland Tree Consulting. Sit back and listen to him tell us about a wonderful redwood tree. My name is Brandon Nam, and I'm an arborist living in Portland, Oregon. My favorite tree is a coast redwood that grows along the Avenue of the Giants in Humboldt Redwood State Park, California. Growing up, my parents, sisters, and I would camp at the state park every year. It was a long trip up from Southern California, and our, and our favorite secret swimming spot on the Eel River was always our first place to stop to wash up. To find the spot, we looked for a very large redwood tree growing immediately next to the avenue. Its heartwood is burnt out, leaving a large entrance and cavity called a goose pen. You can see the goose pen only when approaching the tree from one side, making it an even more secret spot. It is truly a giant pillar of a tree and is large enough for us to have privacy to change and get ready to go down to the river. A short walk through the woods leads down to the Eel River, where we spent many afternoons swimming and playing. We even actually left the dog there a couple of times. It is such a special place that bringing new people to the spot was a very big deal. I can remember the first time showing my wife which tree marks our family's secret place and leading her to the river. I didn't ask my younger sister's permission, and I think I'm still in trouble. In 2021, my father died of Parkinson's disease. We were always very close. Growing up, people commented on how much we looked alike, and I think we both took it as a compliment. He was a compassionate and caring father who always had time to listen to me. Our time spent together hiking, playing baseball, reading, and just sitting quietly in the car during road trips are small moments I will never forget. When my father died, it was the heart of COVID, and we never ended up having a big memorial service. But in October of that year, our family met at Humboldt Redwood State Park and spread my dad's ashes in the Eel River. Afterwards, I kept, a bit for, I kept a bit of them to spread inside the big redwood and to have my own moment with him. My wife is now pregnant with our first child, and I can't wait to point out the big redwood with the goose pen that leads to the swimming spot. I'm terribly sad to know my dad will never meet them, but it is a comfort to know we can always visit the tree growing along the avenue of the giants and know he will be there to guide the way. Wow. Thank you, Brandon, for being willing to share that emotional story about you and your dad. That coastal redwood clearly means a lot to you and your family. The love comes through. So thank you, and good luck to you and your wife and the new baby. Lastly, contributor Fran Hutton takes us to a white oak tree in western Pennsylvania, 
Fran is a mostly retired GIS consultant and cartographer. She loves to sing and travel, especially to places where she can see the forests and wildlife. For fun, she maps her journeys as a cartographer would. Here's Fran. Hi, my name is Fran, and I want to tell you about the largest white oak tree I have ever seen. In 1969, when I was 12, my parents moved us to Indiana County, Pennsylvania, two miles up a long hill from the village of Rochester Mills in Grant Township. The 40 acres we eventually purchased was a mix of old farm fields, wild woods, and tree plantations. Our driveway was a long lane off Nashville Road that went past the house, past a large barn, and then turned uphill at the barn and curved into the woods. The first time we walked up that path to its end, we saw the oak. In 1969, it was over 13 feet in circumference. It had huge branches that spread out wide enough to lie down on. This magnificent white oak dwarfed all the other large old trees around. It was also widely known in the area. True or not, we were told by some of the locals that we had really good water since that oak grew where it needed a lot of water, and our spring house was directly downhill from the oak, and our water was pure and abundant. My brothers used the tree as a ready-made deer stand during hunting season, but I would bring my books or writing into the woods and lean against the tree and ponder its long history. The local people, some farmers, some descendants of the Indian tribes who had lived there, and old loggers who had worked at the logging camp on the property, said that the tree was well over 300 years old. I wondered how this tree had survived, not being nibbled away by the deer, not being cleared for farmland in the 1700s, or for lumbering in the 1800s. I wondered if the oak's roots had been shaken by the Conestoga wagons that passed by on a nearby trail that went west. I wished I could have seen all the history the oak had seen. Whenever I visited my parents in later years, I always hiked up to see that dear old tree. The last time, I hiked up the trail, past the barn, up the hill, in the woods to pay homage to the old tree was in 2019. This tree helped grow my love of history, geography, and cartography, which had become my profession. The property was sold in 2019, and I hope that the oak still stands and brings joy and inspiration to more generations. And thank you, tree lovers, for joining me again today. Please share the show far and wide, and check out the revamped website at thisoldtree.show. All the episodes are there with show notes and transcripts, and you can even buy a t-shirt. I'm Doug Still, and I'll see you next time with This Old Tree.